Welcome to Mind Things, a podcast about how psychedelics will change your brain and change the world. My name is Trey, and I'm going to be talking to people in the psychedelic space. Entrepreneurs, writers, investors, researchers, and people who have had profound experiences using these substances. My guest today is Emma Chasen. Emma is an educator, helping people understand the science behind plant medicine so that they may take charge of their own healing. She graduated from Brown University with a degree in medicinal plant research. She went on to coordinate clinical oncology trials with the Brown University Oncology Research Group. When her supervisor refused a cannabis trial in favor of another expensive pharmaceutical drug, Emma quit and headed across the country to Portland, Oregon. She found her way to Pharma, the popular Portland dispensary that takes a more scientific approach to cannabis. She began her career at Pharma as a bud tender and was quickly promoted to general manager and eventually to director of education. Emma now co-owns and operates Eminent Consulting, a cannabis consulting business that offers educational training and craft industry development for cannabis industry professionals and businesses. This is another episode in which we talk quite a bit about cannabis, obviously, which is not a psychedelic by most standards. But Emma's background and education in particular give her a lot of very well-formed opinions on the state of the psychedelic industry and what the path forward might look like in terms of regulation and legalization. Emma is super smart and high energy and we cover quite a bit. So let's get to the conversation now. A quick reminder that you can check out more info on Emma, including links to her site, to YouTube clips of this episode and show notes, all on our website, mindthings.co. All right, let's get to it. Emma, hello, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you're one of the first people I've met that has a college degree in medicinal plant research. Did I get that right? Yeah. From an Ivy League college, no less, from Brown. So I I was surprised that was even a thing. That was an option. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to choose that as a degree and what you actually studied during school? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'll say that Brown is really cool in that it lets you study basically whatever you want. I knew a girl who studied aesthetics. That was her major, aesthetics. Mm. And so I came to find medicinal plants and came to discover that I could actually formulate a degree around it after I took a freshman seminar called Botanical Roots of Modern Medicine and just really fell in love with the pharmacognosy and pharmacokinetics of these medicinal plants, especially through the ethnobotanical perspective, studying the way in which indigenous people actually would consume these plants and prepare them and how they even came to figure out if you combine this plant with this other plant, then you actually get this really powerful psychedelic hallucinogenic experience Uh that's used in various healing rituals. And so after taking that freshman seminar, I approached the professor of that seminar who is a a wild and wacky human. And he was so down to be my mentor in developing this concentration where we, we really looked at the different ethnobotany of various medicinal plants. I worked a lot in the university greenhouse, actually working with um, the medicinal plants themselves. And so was lucky enough to get approved by the Dean of Bio to make it an official concentration of study. Wow. Well, and yeah, what was your sort of coursework done over the next few years? We 
looked a lot at ethnobotany, like I said, the way in which indigenous peoples use medicinal plants, specifically in the South American region. So we studied a lot of the different tribes who would use ayahuasca specifically and looking at kind of the consumption of DMT through ingestion and the different plant preparations that would allow that to to happen and take effect. I also looked at specifically the secondary compounds found in medicinal plants. And I feel like that really primed me for later working with cannabis. I really wanted to formally study cannabis Mm -hmm. in, in the university, but of course I couldn't, I was barred from doing so for legal reasons, but just learning about different alkaloids and terpenes and flavonoids and different polyphenols and phytonutrients really helped to prime me to better understand the cannabis matrix and and all of the wonderful compounds that are present there. Interesting. So it sounds like a combination of being a historian and a biologist with what you studied. And from what I understand, you're also going to soon be attending graduate school for something similar. Is that right? I am. Yeah. So that's a a new development, but I'm really excited. Uh, I was recently accepted into the master's of science program at Thomas Jefferson university, where I'll be studying medical cannabis science and business. So I'll really get to look at pharmacokinetics of cannabis and the different therapeutics that therapeutic applications of cannabis, as well as tie in some business and some financial stuff. And Uh yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So, so you're a, you're an educator now and you do some consulting work. What was your, what was your intent in studying that in undergrad? And now do you have different intentions going into a grad program and and coming out of that as well? Yeah, definitely. So my intent in studying kind of medicinal plant research, I also did the pre-medical sciences track. I really thought I was going to go to medical school and then quickly realized that the the way in which we've set up medical school in the States isn't exactly for me in terms of the more rigid allopathic structure of it all. And so I, after graduating from my undergraduate program, I went on to do some oncology research to just like further prove to myself that, okay, I don't want to go to medical school. And it, it did just that. It proved to me that I did not want to be in that solely allopathic Western medicine world. It just didn't jive um, or didn't really interest me as much. So then I thought, okay, naturopathic school, I want to do that. And that's what brought me out West to Portland, Oregon, because it's one of the few places that actually has an accredited naturopathic school and program. But I serendipitously arrived a month before the early onset of adult use sales in Oregon, cannabis sales, and I, I needed a job really badly. And so I, I, can took a job at a dispensary. I wanted something more in research. I wanted to go into cannabis research and really begin looking at these compounds, especially since that was my background up until that point. But unfortunately, just there was hardly any opportunity in that sector. So I thought, okay, I'll try a different avenue. Got hired at a dispensary. It was like, I'll be here for two months max while I get my my feet on the ground um, and ended up staying for two years and, and really focused in on on what I see as this opportunity for education and training in the cannabis space, specifically for bud tenders, for those retail professionals who at the time when I joined the industry in 2015, there was absolutely no training. And so we would step onto the sales floor almost blind and and have to not only interface with patients and customers who are asking questions that doctors 
couldn't even answer, but also having to represent the entire industry behind us as well and, and having a wealth of product knowledge and information all while in a fast paced retail environment. And so I, with my background was like, you know what, this is a problem that I feel like I can tackle. And so I really dove into the world of education and, and creating educational resources that were accessible to industry professionals, as well as customers and, and lay enthusiasts. So you use the term bud tender, which is great. If I'm a, if I'm a new bud tender and I don't know anything, like what is the sort of cannabis 101? Like, what are you, what are you talking about in the first few days that goes beyond the just surface level consumer understanding of cannabis? So I really like to approach kind of the fundamental elements of cannabis science is what I call it with new bud tenders. So really begin to impart a philosophy around how do we help guide patients and customers to cannabis that we think will work best for the therapeutic goals they've shared with us. And how do we do so in a respectful way, in a compliant way, in a way that actually allows us to form a connection with that customer and in a way that makes helps us to better like comprehend it for the consumer basically. Mm -hmm. And that involves moving away from the Indica Sativa myth and moving into more of a deeper look at the compounds present in each batch, in each product and being able to say, okay, there's X amount of THC, X amount of CBD. There's these three top terpenes that we're seeing. What kind of effect should that produce for most people um, and really helping bud tenders understand that it's a prediction of experience, that this is actually all quite experimental, but it's really safe. Cannabis has very mm -hmm. low risk, but it, it's not something that is like an ibuprofen pure set per se, where everybody will have a certain range of effects that are quite similar um, and often limited in their diversity where cannabis has a wide range of effects and they could be very different from person to person. And so it's, it's all about one training bud tenders to understand, okay, how do we get to the best prediction possible for experience when we're talking to a customer? And also how do we make customers feel comfortable with the fact that they're going to have to experiment with themselves? And so talking about strategies such as microdosing and certain helpful tips to make sure that you're in a situation where you feel comfortable consuming and, and stuff like that. What is the Indica Sativa myth? So that is the general adoption of the vernacular around the cannabis species, cannabis indica and cannabis sativa, which even that species distinction is still quite debated by taxonomists if it even they are two separate species, if there are more species, Afghanica, et cetera. For this example, we'll say that indica and sativa are generally regarded as species of cannabis mm -hmm. and species as defined by taxonomists have a certain defining kind of morphological array of characteristics, whereas the cannabis community has taken those species, the, the terminology indica and sativa, and have co-opted them to mean a consistent effect. So indica means it'll be sleepy, sedative, it'll put you into couch, whereas sativa will be more uplifting and, and energizing. And I mean, the reason why this is flawed is one, because we're taking something that has a definition of morphology, the way in which the plant grows and then ascribing consistent effect to it in a plant that produces highly variable experiences dependent on the unique physiology of the consumer. So that's flawed. Second reason why it's flawed is because everything or most everything 
seeing at this point on the market is made up of hybridized genetics because mm. especially through prohibition, we've just bred so many different varieties in so many different ways. And, and there was no real scientific log of that since it was all done in, in the black market. And so most cultivars on the market have a mix of hybridized genetics. They have a mix of indica and sativa in them. And so it's really hard to say, okay, in this is an indica and it will produce a sleepy experience in 99% of people. Um, that's setting people up, in my opinion, for disappointment. And it's just not an expectation that has much scientific legitimacy behind it. So instead, I teach and advocate for moving beyond that myth that indica is going to be sleepy all the time and sativa is going to be energizing all the time. And instead, let's look at the compounds in a particular variety's batch, the cannabinoids and the terpenes most notably, to better be able to predict the experience that somebody's going to feel from consuming them. G give me a specific example of, let's say, a consumer need or request and like how you might prescribe for that. So I pick an example someone has anxiety that's me most of the time how would i think about what to choose it can be quite intimidating right because of all these different options and strains and terpenes like th things like that that you mentioned dumb it down for me as a consumer sure yeah i think that one don't be afraid to ask questions to your bud tenders and and that also necessitates doing a bit of research on the dispensary that you're going to go to where most likely the dispensaries will all stock very similar products so you want to go to one that does have a a certain reputation for having an educated staff or at least a staff member that will take some time to really hear you out i think that it is quite a collaborative relationship between bud tender and consumer where you know okay in this kind of case study of you come in with anxiety one of my first leading questions would be well what type of experience are you looking for? So I know what you're not looking for. You don't want to feel anxious, but what, how do you want to feel? Or when do you want to consume? Or what are you consuming for? What are your goals here? And then I'll walk you through the different product options. Okay, do you want to smoke? Are you not so comfortable with smoking? Maybe we choose an, an edible. We start with an edible that has a little bit more CBD with a little bit less THC. We discuss microdosing. Or maybe if you do like to smoke, if you do prefer that whole plant medicine and flower, then we can talk about terpenes and we can talk about, again, choosing a mixed ratio of cannabinoids, keeping that THC fairly low so it doesn't spike anxiety, but then also pulling in a discussion of the, the bountiful and, and delicious terpenes such as limonene. And when I talk about terpenes, I really like to create analogies to the ways in which we consume terpenes every day, all day. I think it really helps make them seem like less of a foreign idea that they're only in cannabis, where terpenes are in almost every single plant. And if you've smelled a citrus fruit, you have mm. consumed limonene. So that then allows me to build this bridge with the consumer of, okay, think about when you smell a citrus fruit or think about even when you're cleaning your house, you have a sense of this like uplifted attitude, this yeah. certain euphoria that you get. And that's because limonene is actually interacting with our serotonin and dopamine receptors to make us feel a little bit more uplifted and a little bit less stressed and anxious. So I'll present a, a cultivar variety that has a higher concentration of limonene. I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of deli weight style and in terms of the way that dispensaries sell flour, because it allows customers to smell the product, to see the product, to really interact with it. I know that because of COVID, that's not a thing right now, yeah. but when hopefully this is all over, we can resume that. Cause I think it's a really important part of the experience to again, create that 
connection between the, the product and the consumer to further push the understanding that this is something that's not so foreign. This is safe. This is a plant that has very low risk and actually contains compounds that, you know, one, in terms of cannabinoids, our bodies already make very similar compounds as to that. We have mm-hmm. a system, the ECS, that is primed to respond to those compounds. And then in regards to terpenes, we consume terpenes all the time. And so it, it again allows that building of trust, that certain alliance, not only between the bud tender and the customer, but also between the customer and the product. So you mentioned how the terpenes interact with serotonin and dopamine receptors. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe contrast it with how some psychedelics interact with those same receptors? Definitely. Yeah. So in the example, limonene in particular being our citrus terpene, it does help to prevent the reuptake of serotonin and also helps to boost the body's levels of dopamine. So serotonin being the neurotransmitter that modulates mood and dopamine um, being our reward neurotransmitter. So both of them make us feel rather happy when they're accumulating in our brain. And so limonene helps to facilitate that experience with psychedelics also act specifically on our serotonin um, receptors are, I'll say most typically on our serotonin receptors. And in the example of the psilocybin mushroom, which is the active compound of psilocybin that our bodies are actually interacting with, they act on a specific type of serotonin receptor. It's the um, 5-HT2AR. So it's a subtype two serotonin receptor that again, allows us to really feel that certain euphoria that is common to certain what I call entheogenic compounds. So compounds that make us feel more empathetic to the world, more empathetic to us, that really boost um, our mood and our sense of kind of euphoria and belonging. With psychedelics, there's also a whole kind of almost destabilization of the brain in a good way, not in a scary way, but in a way that definitely produces more hallucinogenic effects, further distortion of reality. Whereas cannabis, yes, it acts on certain neurotransmitters such as serotonin and dopamine, but also in terms of its cannabinoids, its its main class of compounds, it really keeps to our cannabinoid receptors, which have a very specific set of functions. So while it can be psychedelic in ways, it doesn't necessarily go into the hallucinogenic zone unless we're talking about really high doses. So when you talk about how indigenous people use some of the plant medicines and I'm, and I'm sure cannabis was included in that knowing nothing my perception of that is people using it in sort of rituals and maybe as a rite of passage perhaps from going from an adolescent to to an adult is that right how else are they using it tell us more about that Yeah, no, you're definitely correct, especially with certain preparations of these psychedelic plants, such as ayahuasca or even ibogaine in Africa, where it is a certain rite of passage into from child into adulthood. You have this kind of journey where you're held by the community, but also it's an understanding that you're embarking on this path alone. And it's typically a multi-day kind of ceremonial procedure, even in the way that the plants are harvested, in the way that they're prepared, in the way that things are eaten and in the songs that are sung and the chants that are made. It's it's very much a, a grounding and a holding of space for this rather intense experience, especially for a relatively young person. I think that medicinal plants are also used in just like general kind of 
healing contexts for indigenous people. So for example, Maria Sabina, who would hold the, the mushroom ceremonies. So she is known as kind of mother of medicinal mushrooms. She is from Oaxaca in a mountain town from Oaxaca. And she would hold these ceremonial rituals that typically lasted all night where people would consume the mushrooms again in a very ritualistic way. And it, it was said to have healing applications for the body, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And we see that kind of across cultures, even in the indigenous Mexican practice of curanderismo, which is their kind of traditional folk healing. Different medicinal herbs are brought into the tamascal, which is basically their version of a sweat lodge. And they're just steamed in there. And even they're just beaten on a person. So you don't even necessarily need to consume them for them to still hold quite a bit of reverence and to be absolutely instrumental in these various healing rituals. Have you partaken in any of these ceremonies? I have, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have specifically partaken in Tamascal. I haven't done an ayahuasca retreat. I think that because of how much I've studied it in an academic setting, it is extraordinarily important for me to have my be very comfortable with my set and setting and to make sure that I am in a place where I really trust the, the facilitator of that ceremony and where I feel like it's coming from, it's not coming from a certain kind of like cultural uh, appropriation. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, so I'm based in Portland, Oregon, and there's a lot of opportunity to do ayahuasca rituals and ceremonies in, in Portland. And while I respect and, you know, appreciate the fact that there's access for people who need it there for me, it just, it, I would rather do it in the place where it is from with a person who has a certain legacy and lineage with this medicine from a DNA perspective. But I did have the opportunity to study with Curandero in Oaxaca for about 10 days. And it was an incredible experience where we went through the Tamascal, him and some other Curanderas who were brought in, did some limpias, which is their uh, healing practice. And we were taught all about the medicinal plants and the different rituals. And it was quite humbling and also- And what so, is, sorry, Tamascal it's called? That's the plant? That's the sweat lodge. Oh, okay, I see. And mm -hmm. what, what plant or medicine was consumed during this then? So there's not necessarily any plant consumed, but that's where the medicinal plants will be brought in and steamed. So rue is a typical one. And then even wrapped up into bundles and you dip it into the water that's being steamed and you feed it on yourself as you're in oh, the wow. sweat lodge. And then the limpia is the traditional kind of healing. And that is a holistic kind of combination of mental, emotional, spiritual, physical healing. Copal, which is a tree resin, is often burned. Sometimes medicinal plants are consumed. Sometimes eggs are used where they'll, you know, rub an egg all over your body and crack it into a bowl of water in, in the experience that I had and read the egg and provide you with some insight from that and see if it resonates there. And so it, it was an amazing experience to be able to have access to that kind of knowledge, mm -hmm. to be granted access to that space, especially as a white person. I'm, I really am very sensitive to that fact that as 
Western culture is just starting to accept kind of psychedelics and psychedelic healing into the mainstream that indigenous people have been doing it for centuries and have been, you know, putting their lives and livelihoods on the line to be able to continue to practice this Mm -hmm. sacred medicine. And so anytime I am granted access to that space by these indigenous healers, it means a lot. So yeah, you mentioned there's there's obviously this like huge wave that's happened in the public sphere of psychedelics becoming more mainstream, even though they're not quite legal yet everywhere. What is the right way of balancing the sort of respect for, you know, the origins of of the medicines and making it more publicly accessible? You're a perfect example where you actually do have access, like you mentioned, if you wanted to in Portland, for example, but you prefer not to. What's the path forward there then? I think that we can learn a lot from cannabis and the way that cannabis legalization has gone down in the States. Cannabis at at this point is a commodity market where it was thrown into the free market, having the choice to have dispensaries and places where you could dispense this medicine and there could be different brands of this medicine that then compete on the free market. Um, it was a choice. I, I think that, you know, I'm not going to say it was a bad choice or it was a good choice, but it is the choice that we are left with. And it, it doesn't necessarily prioritize craft or quality of the medicine itself. And I think that is an important lesson to learn, especially as we move forward in not only decriminalization, but also regulation of these psychedelic substances. Oregon in the last election passed a measure that allowed for, that will allow for the regulation of psilocybin. And the reason why I supported that measure as vocally as I did is because they made the choice to not allow any dispensing um, of Mm -hmm. psilocybin mushrooms. So that means that there's going to be no brands, there's no advertising. And I think that does help to protect the the sacredness of the medicine because you're just keeping it out of capitalism. You're keeping it out of a for-profit sphere. And Um, and to be clear, that means it's only, or it would only be available in like a medicinal setting, right? Exactly. But anybody can qualify it for it. So the only way that you would have access to consuming it is by scheduling an appointment with a licensed facilitator where you would have like a check-in pre-appointment and then you would schedule your psilocybin trip, but it would be with a a therapist, with a facilitator. You couldn't really take any home or you couldn't purchase any per se to consume. It's a a parallel right now to how ketamine is offered though, right? Which is, that's sort of blowing up in its own way. And there's companies like Field Trip that are administering it in these sort of high-end clinics. You can't just grab it and take it home with you, but there's still a huge sort of capitalist angle to that, even though it is restricted and it's not dispensed openly to the public, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that especially with ketamine, with MDMA, even with LSD. I mean, they have roots in Western culture. And so I think that they will move forward in a modality as Western culture does, Uh which values capitalism. We live in a capitalist society. I think that with psilocybin, with these other, like specifically plant 
based psychedelics. I think that it is important to create regulation that helps to mitigate that kind of commodity takeover as much as possible. And I also think that it is especially important to listen to indigenous voices. And so having indigenous peoples who have worked with this plant before or who have lineage and legacy in, in accessing this type of medicine be part of the decision-making here. And I think that was also something that the Measure 109 in Oregon that did move to legalize psilocybin that it promised, and I hope it keeps good on its promise, mm -hmm. is that it is saving a certain number of seats on this governor-appointed board that will you know, help to draw up the framework of regulation for Indigenous voices specifically. And I think that is an incredibly important piece of all this is that we again, saw this with cannabis where white people just rushed in with a ton of capital and resources and now is capitalizing on cannabis, whereas there are still many black and brown people sitting in jail for cannabis crimes. And mm -hmm. so we have a big lesson to learn there with psychedelics and the way that we regulate it. If you could step into the mind of an indigenous person who has a voice in this particular issue, like what do you think are, are the issues that are important to them when it comes to rolling things out in a Western society? Sure. I, I would say that while I can't speak, of course, for them, sure. I can definitely speak for me and what kind of I would like to see, which is one quality of the medicine. So how is it being cultivated? How are those people, how are those people being compensated for that? And who are the people who are cultivating it? I would also like to discuss and talk about the, the cost of the service itself. Is this going to be something that is kind of relegated to only the like wealthy class who can mm -hmm. afford these types of services where they'll, will there be subsidies? What does that look like? Same type of deal with who are the licensed facilitators going to be? What do their educational backgrounds need to be before? What kind of training do they need to go through? And how much does that training cost? And then where are we setting up this these centers? Are they only going to be in cities or are we actually going to do some work to make sure that they go into rural communities and rural populations where they are also needed? And I think that is also a, a thing that I've seen, especially in the rollout of kind of the ketamine and the, the MDMA clinics is that they are really kept to the city centers. And I understand that cities have much more liberal politics. And so there are certain rural counties that just don't want any anything to do with psychedelics. However, I think that we need to make sure that we are providing access to this medicine for people who need it in places that need it. And that includes rural communities that maybe they have food deserts, maybe they are, maybe there are a population that is more disparaged or devastated by the war on drugs who do have sufficient trauma where they would benefit from access to this. And I think that's also an important consideration to make in the rollout. Are there governing bodies or like certifications for how things are made, how they're uh, delivered? Certainly it seems like there are, and you're playing this role with cannabis to some degree. Is, is that true? And, and are there things like that with psychedelics as well? There are, so there are third party certifications for mm. cannabis, for sure. There are quite a bit because the federal government still considers cannabis a schedule one drug. There's no real federal oversight as to quality assurance or even analytical testing. And it's a problem. It's a big problem. And we saw that a couple of years ago with the, the vape crisis that happened where people were dying from these lung injuries that were coming from these black market vape pens that were be being diverted from the legal market because there is just no 
oversight in terms of, you know, what should be in there. And I shouldn't say no oversight. There is of course some oversight. However, it's also just a lack of education in these governing bodies that are doing their best to keep up with the science and the information as, as it is coming out. They didn't even think in this case, okay, you shouldn't cut the cannabis extract with vitamin E oil. That wasn't even a thing that they wrote into the regulations at the time, because they didn't even think it would be a problem. And yet, because companies were prioritizing profits, um, they were cutting their cannabis extract with vitamin E oil, which is fine to ingest, fine to imply on your skin, but absolutely not fine to inhale into your lungs. And that's um, the main culprit as to why people were getting sick. So it's a lot of kind of learning as we're going. And for these regulators that are state by state, there's no kind of universal oversight there. It, it's a lot, it's a lot to keep up with and, and a lot to kind of think ahead in that. So you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the sort of decrim measure in Oregon, which, you know, decriminalized psilocybin, but didn't legalize it, right? Can you talk a little bit about that distinction, but also, I guess, where you, you hope things will go in the U.S., maybe over the next, let's say, five or 10 years, and where you think they'll go? Sure. Yeah. So Oregon actually did legalize psilocybin, which is exciting. So we are going to see a regulated market hopefully come to be in 2023, but they also simultaneously decrimmed all drugs. So oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So this means that they'll be able to set up more like safe access centers. So like safe needle drops. It also means that if you are, if you're with a loved one who's experiencing an overdose that you shouldn't have to fear to call 911 to get them some help because they won't be criminally charged. But with these decrim measures that we do see popping up across the country in Oakland, I believe Denver also decrimmed psilocybin. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's legal or totally cool to purchase yeah, yeah, out yeah. there. It just means that you, the penalty is far less probably it looks like a fine. That's what they did in Oregon where you might be fined, but you won't have any criminal charges put against you. And so what, yeah, what do you, how do you see that sort of evolving in, in terms of U.S. regulation opening up? And what do you think is the sort of perfect scenario? So I've been having a lot of these conversations in regards to cannabis, especially in this last week, since there, you know, have been louder than whispers around the, the federal government's intent to legalize cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I think it can go one of two ways. I think that we have to be really careful when we advocate for legalization of cannabis in the federal government, because we do not want it to go the way of being regulated by the FDA and then having many small producers being cut out of that deal mm -hmm. and moving forward with a pharmaceutical model. And that's that's already been done. There are pharmaceuticals that are cannabis derived, specifically Epidiolex, that is that CBD rich drug that is intended for children with seizure disorders, most likely. I, I personally don't want to see it go that way. In my ideal scenario, it would be in the way that the federal government had legalized, allows for the legal sale of alcohol, but they leave it up to the states. So the states get to do mm -hmm. what they want to do with it. And the counties can, they can be a dry county or, or however they want it to move forward with that. And that is where I would like to see cannabis stay. I think that there are some crucial aspects that the cannabis industry needs to be allowed into in order to better operate, such as like, we need to be allowed to bank 
safely and the federal government can take care of that. I also believe that again in this problem of oversight that the federal government should be overseeing the analytical testing of cannabis that they should help set up some standards of quality here so that we can make sure that there are no dangerous levels of pesticides and heavy metals and other adulterants that are cut into these concentrates and extracts. So I do think that they have their role but I think that it, we need to take a measured approach there. So yes to legalization on the federal level, but keeping it in the jurisdiction of the states is important. And I think I'd like to see that similarly with psychedelics. I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath for that to happen, but it would be a major move to see decriminalization on the federal level for all psychedelic medicines and I mean, at, at the very least descheduling. Mm -hmm. And what do you, what, what do you think is realistic then? Maybe, maybe not completely the federal level, but with everything that's being done in Canada and then some of the sort of localized decrim measures that are happening in the US, do you think there's any momentum to, to be had there over the next few years or that's just a, a longer term 10 or 20 year thing that's gonna eventually come to fruition? No, I definitely think that there's momentum, especially because um, of what's happening in Canada and the global market that America, follows the money and loves money. And they see these companies popping up in Canada that are proving to be quite successful in the, the sale and kind of regulated approach to providing psychedelic therapy for different people who need it. And I think that Oregon will be a great guinea pig there with psilocybin and we'll see that roll out. But I would expect, you know, the tide to, to be rather sweeping just as we saw with cannabis when now God, almost 10 years ago now when cannabis started really becoming mm. legal for people over 21. And it was like crazy. And now Mississippi, South Dakota, like it's crazy, right? It, it's happening. So I, I think that psychedelics will follow suit. So going back to your studies, how do you think your sort of day-to-day -day job is going to change on the other side of your next degree here. And, and part of that's just based on how the world is going to change in the next few years. Yeah. Oh, another really exciting thing that I didn't mention about the potential of federal legalization is mm -hmm. the opportunity for research. And that's huge. That's another thing that the United States in so many other sectors, we are so far behind other quote unquote first world countries. And that absolutely includes cannabis research where other countries are like moving forward at such a speed. And because of these federal limitations, we just are moving forward at such a creeping pace. And so I, I really hope that on the other side of my master's that hopefully some things will have changed on the federal landscape and that there will be much more opportunity to conduct cannabis research as well as research with other psychedelic plants. And that's really where I'd love to return to. Uh, that was my original intent, uh, not only in my undergraduate degree, but even when I first tried to enter the industry, I really wanted to get into cannabis research, yeah. just didn't exist. And so I'd like to devote, you know, my efforts to that kind of realm on the other side of it. So let's say hypothetically, you're, you're given a huge budget and you're given the green light to do as much research as you want. What are you, wh where are you starting? What are you excited about? What do you want to dig into? Oh my God. That's a huge question. I really like compounding pharmacy. So I really like the idea of combining not only cannabinoids and terpenes and, you know, whole plant medicine and cannabis, but 
also pulling in medicinal mushrooms, not even necessarily psilocybin, lion's mane, reishi, chaga, turkey tail, as well as with other supportive botanicals, especially in, you know, my undergraduate kind of studies and career, we very much were taught that like it is multiple plants together that produce these profound therapeutic experiences for people. And that continues to be the school of thought that I operate out of that the future is not necessarily isolated compounds to produce a subset of effects, especially as we move into, you know, more of a, a botanical kind of medicine approach. I think it, it always is the power of the matrix, the, the synergy of these different compounds of these different plants. And so if I had no legal limitations, if I was given a huge budget, that would be where I started was really to identify what I call the all-star players in the plant Mm. world and start to combine them and see what their different efficacy for a variety of different symptomatic applications could be. Do you have any sort of anecdotal examples of combinations that you've seen work or experienced working? Yeah, definitely. So CBD plus chlorophyll plus chaga, medicinal mushroom, really amazing for mental clarity and reduction of anxiety for sleep, THC, plus a little bit of CBD, kava, as well as some passion flower, incredible for sleep. Those are, you know, just two examples, but they're, they're powerful in at least my own personal experience, as well as talking to a few others. And there is scientific rationale for, okay, the main active ingredient in kava lactones are actually able to engage the CB1 receptor. So there must be something going on, right? Between the cannabinoids and the kava when they're taken together, there like must be some amplification of effects if they're both acting on these pathways, but really being able to dive into the whys, the hows, the what's of that Mm -hmm. would be so exciting. So you're alluding to it here, but do you have any, do you have any regular practices or routines of supplements or or plants that you take for certain things? Yes, definitely. Um, of course, cannabis, cannabis, of course, kava is a big one. I have a kava tincture and I often have trouble sleeping. I have a very overactive brain, very chatty. So Mm -hmm. it's hard at the end of the night and And sometimes cannabis just like amplifies that if I'm not, you know, careful to be very intentional around what exactly I'm consuming. And so kava really helps to calm it down, especially if I have five milligrams THC of an edible, if some CBN is in there and some CBD even better, and then pull in some kava, I'll sleep like a friggin' baby. I love chlorophyll. <laughs> that hence my example. I love chlorophyll. And I also really love like the an, rate- an over-the-counter Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can get it at really any health food store, even at a more health geared supermarket. They'll Mm. even have. I'm sorry. uh, When do you take that? Or for what do you take that? I take that for digestive health, but I've also found that when used in combination with CBD tincture in particular, as well as some of these like medicinal mushrooms, such as reishi and, and chaga, that it creates a really beautiful like mental clarity, but also helps to calm down all the background chatter. So it, it like in, in the way that I can describe the experience, it, it has a calming, but also alerting effect, if that makes sense. I feel like if I had your sort of your brain and your knowledge of cannabis, I'd be trying to apply it to 10 different things in my life or 10 different reasons to take it. Do you find yourself doing that? Or you just know these are the one or two things that I use that for. And then the rest I might solve in other ways. In the beginning, when I entered into the industry, 
2015, absolutely. It was trying every different kind of product and application for every different thing. And I still do that in some ways, but I've definitely honed in on products that I like and products that I don't like. For example, I am not a fan of concentrates. I just don't like the carts. I get that they're for some people and they're discreet, easy to use, measured dosing, all of that. But that's something like a small vape, like a dosist or something. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just not for me. So any of those like extracts or concentrates, just not for me. I like topicals. I use them rarely, but I like them when I need them, but really stick to my two true loves of flower, just like beautiful, organically grown, just craft flower and then edibles. I'm a big fan of edibles. I'd say that that's probably my preferred. And I've come to learn and just reckon with myself that edibles are not for every thing <laughs> that they're not always fun but in certain cases they can be very fun that's great Th- this has been very illuminating for me is there anything you would like to leave the audience with or, or places that they can find out more about you and your work yeah sure so please hit up my website eminentconsultingfirm.com if you want to learn more about me and the work that i do and with cannabis and all psychedelics and all medicinal plants i think that there is a lot of fun in the exploration of it all that relatively they're low risk and so approaching it not only with a a scientific rigor and kind of this intellectual curiosity and inquisitive nature but also with a certain dose of whimsy and fun and an inner child exploration is really the chef's kiss (laughs) for the for those that might be watching this you want to give a quick shout out to who's been making a couple cameo appearances here Yes. Yes. Sorry. I have a very spicy little kitten. His name is Henry Winkler the second, and he's right now requesting dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today, Emma. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It has been really fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or know of anyone who might benefit from hearing it, please subscribe and share. You can also sign up for the Mind Things newsletter at mindthings.co and find us on Twitter at mindthingsco. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.